The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome Baz Black. Baz Black is an actor, media contributor, model, and performance artist. Selected acting credits include Into the Badlands, Blue Bloods, and Irish Pictorial Weekly, and upcoming Irish production, Ken. Baz is also a highly respected piercing artist and a proponent of body modification. He frequently contributes to media debates on the merits and artistry of body modification. He has pierced professionally for over 15 years and owns a tattoo and piercing shop in Ireland. He has worked across the world and continues to work at tattoo conventions and guest spots on a regular basis. He also plays drums for the band Amongst the Wolves. Welcome to the show, Baz. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. Good. How are you? How is everything? Yeah, all good. Um, tough times for everybody at the moment, but we're struggling through it as best we can. Yeah, you're you're in. Are you in Dundalk? You are. Yeah, Dundalk. Yeah, yeah. That's where I'm based. How is everything there? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, there's not much moving um, as regards working in our industry uh, for the tattoo and piercing side of it. It's all on shutdown, obviously. Um. So, yeah, just trying to stay as creative as possible as regards writing scripts and getting stuff done on on the other side of things yeah do you find that this time is giving you kind of more impetus to do you know written material and scripts and everything because you're at home more or is it is it like hindering work you have in the pipeline yeah it's kind of a, a little bit of column a a little bit of column b really um I'm I'm so used to being so busy not having a minute running from one thing to the other um so for me, it was a little bit of an adjustment cha- change and challenge. And I think um, a lot of people, including my friends, um, you kind of feel a lot of pressure to be creative because you're sitting at home doing nothing. And uh, I, I've always said it, but you can't force it. You know, you can't force yourself to be creative if you're not feeling it, you're not in the mood, you're not in the right mindset, you know. So, um, yeah, I just taking it day by day and... I did use it uh, to get my feature film script finished, which is something that I've been wanting to do for for a long time. So that was definitely a bonus. Um, And I have been lucky that I I got to do some filming over the last year as well. Um, So because I know a lot of my friends, they've, they've not been able to do anything at all. So. Yeah, fifty-fifty. I think. Yeah, it's hard. I know my sister is an actress, and and she she has that kind of problem as well. Where you know, obviously, shoots were shut down and things put on the long finger, and you know, waiting for months and now turning into years. So it's a hard time for anybody in the music industry or in the acting industry completely because it's just kind of. I think the government looks upon these things. Oh, it's they're not a necessity. These are just something that, you know, keeps people entertained. But right now, when you look at it, now people need to be entertained because they're spending more time in the home. So, like, the arts is really badly needed now, but the funding and everything is not there for it. Yeah, it's just, unfortunately, it's seen as, you know, just not essential in any shape or form. And, uh, you know, it's the one thing that people turned to during the lockdown was the arts, you know, Netflix movies, reading books, you know, uh, music, all that kind of stuff. And, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, the only things that were going ahead filming-wise were the bigger productions that were able to afford the COVID tests. Um, 
and I was lucky enough to be on a few of those. But anything smaller or indie or anything like that just went out the window. And same with the gigs. Um, I play for two bands um, and all the gigs just being pushed and moved. And then a lot of the stuff got cancelled as well. I, like I even in January, I booked a commercial um a big commercial and a well-paid commercial and I was delighted and I was meant to fly to Portugal on the 20th of January and it got pushed to February and then pushed to March and now there's radio silence you know they, they couldn't get it together because of COVID and I don't know if that's going to go away or if it's going to come back so yeah it's tough. Yeah I, I'm sure like that you know there's lots of actors and you know musicians that had good gig, gigs got and you know they were like oh wow this could be a lucrative you know season and then everything was just yeah. kind of pulled from under their feet wasn't it? Yeah it really was you know and um, I mean in comparison it's small scale to what a lot of people have had to go through obviously you know with the virus um but just it, it has been so tough and especially for creative people uh, in the arts you know and finding new ways to try and express themselves uh, it's just been a whole kind of culture shock to the system having to adapt to it so Kamir Baz obviously you know you you have your um, finger and a lot of pies which I think is brilliant you know I, I'm I'm that kind of soul myself I like to to dabble in lots of different things but you know just obviously looking over all your stuff I mean you you do so much and you must have no time for you know doing at the moment you've lots of time probably yeah. <laughs> but in in a normal day-to-day between your bands and your acting modeling directing all that kind of stuff how do you find the time to do everything jack of all trades master of none you know it's uh <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i like i it's always been kind of one of my one of my problems or my weaknesses like um i definitely have a touch of add you know and i i do litter from one project to the next um but I mean, I've always just been really creative and my mind kind of never stops. And whatever I can do to be creative in whatever aspect comes along, um, I just try and adapt to it as best I can. I've, I've gotten better as the years have gone on, you know. Um, I've kind of been able to concentrate a little bit more um, and try not to let the distractions get the better of me, you know. But um, yeah, I don't know. Everything everything I do is uh, I I have to have a passion for it if I'm doing it, you know, and I won't I won't do something unless I'm 100% invested and I'm very committed to whatever I do whether it's with the bands or the music or the writing or directing or acting or whatever it is. Um I might like jump around on projects, but I always try and give them 100%. Well, I I think that's the thing. Once you're doing different things, it's very hard to just kind of do one thing, move on to the next. You kind of you're doing them all in tandem, and you know you're kind of saying, "Oh my God, I have yeah. a meeting to go to, or I have to talk to this person, and I'm working on a song or working on a script." And that's kind of the way I suppose. No matter how focused you try to be, when you're any way creative, you're kind of like it, it's sometimes the mind of a scattered genius. You know, you know where everything is yeah. and you know, you have the keys to all the rooms. But if you were to try and show somebody else or explain it, you probably they'd be lost. That's exactly it. Yeah, it, it, like 100 percent what you said, you know, um, and just trying to keep checking yourself as well, you know, to make sure that you are giving your best to each of these projects, you know, and not letting one take away from from the other. But um, but even when I was busy and yeah, it was stressful and running from one thing to the other, I, I handle it pretty well. And like I said, anything that I do is is always something that I, I genuinely want to do. I won't do anything unless I'm I'm properly invested into it, you know. Um, but I, I suppose I did have a problem with saying no, you know. There's one thing about positive mindset and saying yes to as much as you can. But 
taking on too much and, and saying yes to everything that comes along, uh, you end up burning yourself out a little bit. So in that regard, being able to sit back and reflect a little bit more has been good during the lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, obviously, you know, you're you're from Louth. Were you born in, in County Louth or, or where were you born? Yeah, I was born in Drada um, originally, and then my family moved out to the countryside just outside Drada when I was about five. Um, so I still went to school in Drada and all that kind of stuff, but um, we were lucky that we got to grow up in the countryside and not not in the actual town. Is your family big? Like, do you have many brothers and sisters or only child or what's the story? I have an older brother and then I have a younger sister. Right, so right. Not, not, a, not a massive family. Um, and like me and my brother are like chalk and cheese. He's suited and booted, business owner, you know. Really? He's like really the opposite to me. Yeah, he's a drummer as well, actually. But um, and um, and then my sister, like she's a childminder and um, yeah, all of us kind of different, but growing up, we all got along. Yeah. And and both your parents are still alive or? Yeah. Yeah. Still alive. Yeah. <clears throat> when you look back now, kind of for your early memories, what kind of memories do you have growing up? Because you were living in the countryside or kind of in, in the suburbs or? Yeah, kind of. Well, just, just outside, I mean, about five miles outside the town and, it was like a countryside. We had a big woodland behind us, which was great. Um, and pretty happy memories as a as a child, you know. We'd I, I say to my mom now, I was like, Jesus, like we used to go off at like nine in the morning down the woods and there'd be a whistle from my dad for dinner at five o'clock. I'd be like there to my mom, what if we died down there? Yeah, She's just yeah. like, that's the way it yeah, was, yeah. you know. Yeah. And these days it's like it's the opposite, you know, everyone on their mobiles checking in on each other. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, I I was talking to Dave Finnegan lately uh, from the actor, and and he he was saying they'd go up the Dublin mountains, and you know they'd nearly be coming back the next morning, yeah, and the yeah. mother'd be like, oh, "Where where the hell were you?" Because you know that out of sight, out of mind. But yeah. it's com- the mindset's changed now completely because parents are overprotective and worrying, and you know maybe there's some reason, but you know the problem is we're too connected now to everybody, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no freedom anymore, and. Um, yeah, I'm just glad that we, I'm sounding old, but I'm glad that we grew up in that yeah. era where it was that kind of, you go off an adventure and they weren't worrying and there's no way, of con- the only way of contacting us was my dad whistling. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say there, I don't think there's many dads that would be out the back whistling nowadays. <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. An odd one, but not many. <laughs> so, so when you were... Um, when you were in the town, then obviously, and as you started becoming, you know, into teenage years and everything, was it was it a you know around that area? Was there much to do, or were you bored? Did you kind of want to head into the city more? Yeah, well, I mean, Andrada, it, it's quite a rough town, you know, uh, has a reputation of it. And I went to school there, and it was quite rough. Um, and I mean, I was a bit of a tearaway then in my teenage years, to be honest. Um, and I kind of found um, music very early on from my cousins, which was great. And that was kind of my escape and drumming and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I was doing uh, a lot of boxing and martial arts kind of stuff um, and getting into a lot of trouble, though, in school and fights and all your usual juvenile kind of crap, you know, and. Um, and then it wasn't really until I um, started jiu-jitsu then when I was 15 that I, I really kind of started calming down and get a lot more focus. And um, 
but yeah, so just kind of, it was a bit of a tear away, like really bad temper, always getting in trouble. And then the, the kind of like, I never diagnosed or anything, but the ADD thing, just not being able to concentrate. I didn't want to be in school. Um, the only things I liked were stuff like art and anything creative, like English and mm. everything else. I hated and rebelled and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, yeah, I was a bit of a, a tearaway as a teenager, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, everybody in some ways, some are worse than others. And, you know, some could be considered very tame to other people. But the one thing, obviously, because I was like you, I when I was young, I studied martial arts for years. And, and um, it does ground you, I mean. It depends, obviously, on your level of, of wildness going into it. But I think when you're doing boxing or martial arts or jiu-jitsu or karate, anything like that, it gives you that little bit of discipline. And you kind of, you know, because really when you're in a, a gym or you're in a, a dojo, the, the instructor is not going to take any shit. So you can come in and you're yeah. like, well, nobody's going to stop me. And he's like, well, there's the door. So, you know, if, yeah. if you're in here for the hour or two hours you're doing the class, you have to listen to me, you know, or whoever yeah. else is in charge. So... It does teach you that little bit of discipline and then it teaches your respect for other people too, doesn't it? Definitely, yeah. And it was the threat of, you know, if you're caught acting the bollocks outside the dojo yeah. or out of the club, you know. Um, and to be honest with you, I was, I was when I was boxing, um, the trainer and the instructor, like he was really, really bad influence on us young lads because he was kind of inciting violence. He was like, you know, if somebody looks at you in the street, you go over and you knock them out. Really? And he was telling us young, impressionable lads, you know, and it was completely wrong when you look back on it now. And then when I joined, joined Jiu-Jitsu, it was just the complete opposite. And then just even the, the Japanese discipline and, you know, learn about the heritage and the respect and all that. Um, it, now, it, I'm not saying I turned into an angel overnight, but it definitely gave me a, a lot more focus and kind of calmed me down a lot as well. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, that's what's great about any kind of sport or martial art or anything. But it's true. I mean, I, I've trained in a few different gyms and sometimes, you, you know, some of these instructors, some of them can be great and they're, you know, very good people and they have the students' interests at heart. But yeah, when you get a when you get an instructor that's kind of, like sometimes doing favoritism and then, you know, telling students, you know, to really act out the violence if they're if they're kind of provoked. It's not a great thing. And and if if someone is in any way kind of inclined towards violence and you have an instructor pushing you and giving you yeah. the skills and the weapons to use that, it's not a good thing. No, definitely not. Um, and they don't realize how much influence they have over these young lads, you know. And then um, all the fighting and all the acting up and all that, it's just, it's, it's all a defense mechanism. You know, it was, it was being scared in a rough town and kind of acting out onto that and, you know, trying to act the hard man and all that kind of crap that goes on with young lads, you mm. know? Um, and then just when you, when you join something like martial arts and like my, my sensei, when I joined, he's, he was the most gentle, calmest man you would ever come across. And, I mean, he'd kill you in a second, but he was so softly spoken, you would never suspect, you know, and he was a six-stand black belt and absolutely amazing. And uh, he he really, and it, like, he ended up, like, coming to my band's gigs and, you know, he was so supportive, you know, and he was, made such an impact on my life. And then um, when I was not 18 or 19, uh, he killed himself. Oh, no way. And it, it, was, it was such a huge hit you know at that kind of age having a mentor like that that had done so much and uh, it definitely rocked me for a while there 
Yeah. Well, what, what, like, was it depression or something he suffered from? Yeah, it was like, I mean, he he was fine and normal training and everything. But I'll never forget the the last night we were training, and um, uh, I was get I was up to a stage where I was teaching some of the classes, you know, and he he asked me to teach the class, and uh, he he was very very somber and not like himself at all, you know, because he was normally always so chatty, and there was something up anyway. But the um, the owner of the jiu-jitsu club at, at the end uh, when we were locking up, um, I'll never forget. He 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 said to Dave, he goes, "Make sure you come to me tomorrow, and we'll talk about this problem. We'll sort it out." And and Dave, my sensei, like he turned around and said, uh, "I'm going to sort this out myself." Okay. So you know, not not realizing at the time, but that's that's what he meant. Then. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. You you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Well, that's sad. That's sad. And, you know, it just shows you, though, isn't it? Because people always assume, you know, that depression is only against those. It's, you know, the people that suffer the most are people who are weak. But even people who are mentally mentally and physically strong can be overtaken by it. And it's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, it'd just be the last, as as people always say, it'd be the last person that you would expect, mm. you know, and wow. so talented and, and so dedicated to the martial arts and everything, you know, and uh, so yeah, that was kind of a, a big hit then around that age to kind of take take on, yeah. We, when you were in school and stuff, did you want to go on and study further education or did you want to kind of go out work and what was your thought process? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just wanted a drum and bands, you know, right. and I was, I was drumming in bands and, um, anything I could do to kind of get me out of school. And then, yeah, when I, when I finished school, then uh, I, I didn't want to go to college or anything like that. Um, and I took on an apprenticeship as a painter, um, you know, like on building sites and stuff like that, just to get some work under my belt. And then after a while of doing that, when everyone shut up about it, I decided then I would go to college and train. And I actually uh, went to train as, and qualified as a fitness instructor. Okay. Um, because I was teaching, I was still teaching jujitsu, um, so it, it went hand in hand. Uh, I went and qualified in that, and I was working in gyms then part time as well. Yeah, that's the thing. I know, like uh, my my niece is a fitness instructor, and she she's in the UK at the moment, but she's still doing it. But I know lots of other people that have studied to be fitness instructors, and you know, especially when you do these private courses, and you pay you know, 1,500, 2,000 euros. But there's a lot of people do them and don't do anything after, isn't there then? Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I I always trained in the gym. I still train in the gym at all. And I was working in the gym and it was coming from teaching martial arts and training martial arts. Um, I was on the European team. We were training six nights a week and then going into a gym. And I was so used to you know, <laughs> people doing what they were told and training to their hardest and really fighting for that goal and fighting for your team and everything. And then you go into a gym and you're speaking to people and they come back to you in six weeks and it's like, uh, oh, I haven't lost any weight. And you look and they've been to the gym twice. And, <laughs> you know, it was the complete 360 of what yeah. I was used to. Yeah, yeah. And it really frustrated me. And um, yeah, I decided it wasn't really something that I was interested in. So, And, and you know, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because like I had a kind of similar path where I was involved in martial arts for years and training five nights a week. And I remember, you know, hitching and thumbing in the rain when my old friend couldn't give me a lift because he was working and I'd hitch and everything. And you just did everything you could to make the training and to do it and to go for your gradings and so on. Yeah. And you give it your all. And 
but then you know as as you get older then you can discover other things and for me like that i discovered music as i got a bit older and um things can change and it's funny though because when sometimes the life of musicians and actors and everything can be kind of the opposite of let's say a professional martial artist where where they're they might they're focused but in a different way and they're maybe staying up late at night getting up early or getting up later in the day and it, it's a different lifestyle isn't it yeah it definitely is um but what I will say about the martial arts and just because I was teaching, it definitely has helped me with my directing now, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it was the first time that I realized that I, I was good at teaching people and I'm good at explaining things and relating to people and stuff, you know? So um, I think there's loads that I could take from the martial arts days. Um, but yeah, I was the same. Like I was obsessed. I was just training, training, training um, as much as I possibly could. And it was, it was my everything, you know? And, and like you said, things come into your life and things completely change. And I look at it now and I'm like, oh, I could never go back to that. But I'm actually, I'm after being cast as um, uh, a cage fighter in a, a new feature film, a UK feature right. film called On Cage. Um, so I'm back, <laughs> I'm back to square one again, where I have to go back training again, you know. Yeah. And I, I quickly realized that my flexibility <laughs> and my <laughs> cardio is completely out the window. So... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but that's great because obviously, with with a movie about cage fighting or MMA, yeah, a lot, you know, the skills that you already have that m- might be a bit rusty will come back to you, and it's a great asset for the for the director and you know the the whole movie project. So that's going to be a great thing, isn't it? And you I mean you have the box and as well and everything, so yeah. you're kind of perfect for the role. Yeah, I mean it is great, um, and like I, I I still train in the gym and I do my bits and pieces and all that, but um after I was filming for Kin, which my character, I just felt was quite shoulder heavy and, you know, a bit of weight. Um, I had to go back to the cardio side of getting into an MMA fighter again. But like, I honestly, I was shocked at how bad my flexibility was. I used to be able to swing my leg around my head, you know, um, the cardio side, but it's been a few weeks now and I'm just kind of getting back up to close to where I need to be again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. um, But yeah, that's great. it's It's a great, it's a great role, and um, Francis Saunders, who's directed, wrote and directed it, um, he's actually a cage fighter himself. Um, he's retired now, but he had a great career in cage fighting, so he knows he knows where he's coming from with it, you know. So, uh, looking forward to it. Brilliant! That'll be interesting, yeah. Because I mean, there's sometimes you'll find some of those gems, uh, uh, like you know, when it comes to. I watched one recently, and it was uh, I think it was called, uh, something champion about the guy who was a jiu-jitsu champion and a, a, a BJJ champion. But he, he and it was it was kind of semi-true and semi-not, but it's quite good. Um, so, I mean, there are some of them you don't hear about, and you discover them, and you're like, oh, I didn't know this movie was there. Because, you know, yeah, I would have been like that. Yeah. I would have watched, when I was young, all the Bruce Lee, Van Damme movies, you know, Steven Seagal, mm-hmm. all those movies. But now a lot of um, martial art movies are, are kind of, maybe straight to video or B movies and so on. So sometimes you never hear about them and then you just discover them by accident scrolling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's, there's so many of them out there. Um, uh, there's a great boxing one, um, called Jawbone. Did you see that one? I haven't seen that yet. No, no. Absolutely. It's a, it's an English one. Absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many of them out there and, the great thing about Francis is because he comes from that world and he loves all those movies as I do as well. He's like, he doesn't want it to be 
stuff that's been made before, you know. So it's kind of a drama set in the MMA world um, with loads of different emotions going on. So it won't just be a straight martial arts film. So the script is really strong, yeah. So uh, he's, he's taking a different stance on it. When you were filming Into the Badlands, and obviously, you know, Daniel Wu, he's a great martial artist and great, you know, actor in the in the thing. At the, you must have seen a lot of fight choreography during like that time you were there, did you? It was like a dream come true because it was actually um, Jackie Chan's choreography okay. team that were the ones choreographing it. Um, and it was just to watch them was just like absolutely amazing. But you know who actually blew me away and I couldn't believe it was Nick Frost. Really? He, like, because, you know, he's a big guy. Yeah, yeah. And, um, he had his stunt double there, and I don't think his stunt double did anything. He did all his own choreography, stunts. Um, and, you know, the Jackie Chan team would be going through the choreography and showing him, and then he'd step in and, he, and he'd kind of shadow go through it. And I was thinking, you know, they're just going to get pickups of it, you know, whatever. And he'd, he'd go in and he'd do the take full, flipping guys over, like his his agility for the size of him and everything. And I was, I was speaking to him then afterwards and I was like, Jesus, Nick, like I have to say, I wasn't expecting you to be doing those moves. And I was like, what martial arts did you train in? And he was like, uh, I never really trained in martial arts. It's all dance training. Okay. That's what he did in theater uh, training. Like was, he did a dance, you know, degree. So his dance movements were what he was applying to the martial arts. And I, I was amazed at how good he, he's uh, it's a bit like uh, Patrick Swayze and yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a, a great dancer could probably make a great martial yeah. artist, not necessarily hmm. in the cage, but for the screen for sure. Well, Van Damme as well, he was a ballet dancer, so you know, yeah, it goes hand in hand, but yeah, being on Into the Badlands, it was, it was such a cool experience. Um, there was um, a scene that got cut out in the end, but uh, I, I was good at I, I was on a, a wire. And I was like jumping off the the podium for this big like flying through the air punch thing, but it didn't make it in the final cut. But uh, you know, um, yeah, that that's a shame, I'm sure, for actors. You know, they like they film the scenes and then they're going through the dailies and so on, and then you know, are they're like, uh, my part's yeah. not in it, or that was the best part of my. Yeah, it's a shame because sometimes they they can film so much and then they might only use twenty percent of it. So it's that's that's it. I, yeah, I've I've an actor friend who was in like a pretty big new production and got the devastating email that uh, her scenes were completely cut out of the whole thing. Wow! And it's not it's no reflection on her or actors. It never usually is. It's to do with the edit and what they can fit in and how the story's shaping up and everything. But um, so yeah, not in it at all, you know. So wow, wow, yeah, it's a shame. So so let's. I wanna, I wanna, um, I wanna come back to the movies and the TV in a while. But just let's look at the music for a moment because you know, what age did you start drumming at? And I suppose to lead on from that, what kind of music were you into in your teens? Well, if you ask my mother, I've been drumming since the age of about four. Okay, um, just you know, pots and pans, whatever I could get my hands on. But um, my cousins um, who lived just down the road from us growing up, they they always had a garage band. And um, so that's where we hung out as kids. And 
um, they actually they used to play like Pantera songs and Metallica songs and tell us that it was their songs that they'd written. <laughs> and it wasn't until I heard those songs years later, I was like, Colin, they're playing my cousin's song. <laughs> they ripped my cousin Who off. Who the hell is <laughs> James Hetfield playing my cousin's song? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was the other way around. Um, so yeah, it was all that, you know, like Iron Maiden, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, you know, all the classics yeah. kind of, you know, heavy metal that that was my my jam um and then as i got into my early teens it kind of transferred over to a lot of punk rock kind of stuff you yeah. know i got into green day and and bands like that and but like i listened to an eclectic you know array of of different bands and i still do to this day but it was uh really the the punk rock kind of drumming that i i kind of attach myself to and um, like no effects and all that kind of soul cal kind of fast punk rock yeah yeah i mean that's the great thing with punk there's so many bands you know whether it be black flag or no effects or you know the the the, the offspring or green day which were which were more commercial but i mean there's such great diversity and you know nowadays obviously you know what i mean we need another punk revival we need another rock revival really i suppose but um it's everything is changed doesn't it so even now you'll still find most of the best punk bands are the older ones still yeah that is definitely true there doesn't doesn't seem to be a lot coming through or anything that's coming through seems to be all the same safe stuff you know yeah um but i mean like fate no more would be one of my favorite bands still to this day you know i love i love i'm a big big fan of fate no more as well i love those brilliant absolutely mike Patton. anything mike Patton does is just he's just a he's he's an amazing singer and he's very underrated because you know it's funny because you can you can hear people like Metallica or Guns N' Roses or Pantera and stuff but not everybody likes fate no more or not everybody has discovered them because they were very big, obviously, around that time when Guns N' Roses were doing those huge tours and Fate No More were touring. And uh, But, yeah, they don't get the, as much acclaim as they deserve, really, do they? Definitely not, no. Um, I know, like, in a Kerrang! poll, um, Angel Dust was voted as the most influential metal album of all time, you know? So there is, there's kind of, like, a quiet respect, but they never reached the heights of Metallica or Guns N' Roses or any of those kind of ones. Um, I, know when I, I know when I'm in, in the car and... I'm playing, like, if I have Metallica on or Guns N' Roses, my wife will listen to But if I'm playing Fate No More, she's like, can I change this? I'm like, this is these are great band. I know you love, like this band, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. It took a, and actually, same with my wife. Um, I had the King For A Day album on, like, early, early on in our relationship. And she was like, what the fuck is this? And I was so used to it. Yeah. I was like, what are we talking about? This is amazing. And she's like, this is weird. Is that the same band? Because they changed yeah, so much. Yeah, the and now it's one of our favorite bands, but they are a band that you have to kind of get an acquired taste for, I think. You know? Yeah, you know, they have to grow in you because it, they're not, they don't sound so commercial and you have to grow yeah. into the sound, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you were, you know, coming up then as a drummer and, and playing with bands and stuff, did you play in a lot of cover bands or original bands or, or like were you trying to get a lot of gigs? Always um, pretty much original bands. And I mean, my, my first band was, you know, my brother, he, he's a piano player. He was on keyboards and that was kind of a covers band. Um, and then I was in a band called BLX, which was definitely like a, a punk rock kind of no effectsy kind of Blink-182 style kind of stuff. And we were only young lads, but we actually did like really well for ourselves. And we put out two albums and an EP and we used to play. Um, I don't know if you remember those blast gigs in Dublin. They were like an all ages 
thing on a Saturday. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about them. They yeah, were huge, you know. And if you got onto those, you, yeah, and they used to sell wherever Temple Mary Music Center, wherever they used to sell them out. So we thought we were great. We thought we were little <laughs> rock stars, you know, playing away, hitting uh, for the big time. Yeah, hit it, hit it big time, definitely. Um, so yeah, that was that was the first like proper proper band, and and then it kind of just went on from there. I've I've never not been in a band really on, since I was about twelve, you know, um, and I've played in in all sorts of bands, um, like there was even the the emo scene there for a while, kind of hard emo rock kind of stuff, and um, I played drums for DJs live and nightclubs, and um, my band now is like Celtic punk rock and kind of like Dropkick Murphy's kind of let's talk, let's talk about your band uh, Amongst the Wolves um, so yeah it's, it's kind of a Celtic sound um, you're a three piece aren't you yeah three piece yeah yeah. Um, and how at the moment like obviously things have stopped but up before that were you recording or gigging or doing a lot we were flat out yeah um, we actually found ourselves on the biker rally circuit Um which is not a route that I ever thought we'd we'd end up going down, um. But because of the Celtic kind of piratey sound, they seem to to like us. And then once you get on a few of them, they they keep recommending you, and um, they they've been brilliant to us. Um, but yeah, we we're we we're playing loads of gigs in Dublin, and and uh, we we're working on our second full length album. We have an EP and we have a, our debut album as well. Um, but yeah, at the moment everything is just kind of on hiatus you know yeah and you know it's funny because i was talking to someone a few months ago as well on the show and we were talking about uh playing those biker gigs because i i remember years ago i was playing in a in a cover band and we were kind of playing everything from guns and roses metallica stuff and mixing it up you know and um we were doing a lot of biker rallies but you know they, those are some of the best gigs and some of the nicest people definitely they're like and and we've played like some of the hardcore ones, you know, and we were a bit skeptical about it and they treat you with so much respect and, you know, other, other gigs, you'd be chasing them for your money afterwards. It'd be hand out, there's your money, you know, no questions, but it's very unusual for an originals band like we are to get on the biker rally circuit. It's normally covers bands and we throw in a few covers like into our set, but we're an original band. So to get on it is kind of, um, it's a bit unheard of, uh, but it's, they've been really, really good to us, and we love playing them. So that that's great. You're able to keep it going and everything. Obviously, at the moment, it's a bit difficult, but you know. Yeah. So, so when did you open up your your tattoo shop and the piercing shop? How long ago did you open that? I always have been fascinated with tattoos and piercing and the whole the whole shebang, and it was um, always piercing for me because art wise, drawn wise, I'm not good at art, you know, I'm creative in other aspects, but drawn wise, I'm not. So it was always the piercing thing that fascinated me. So I was trying to get an apprenticeship here in Ireland and um, it was proven really difficult. I was, there was a shop in Dublin. I was going up and cleaning at the weekends and just trying to get my foot in the door and just working for free whenever I could, but there wasn't much happening. So uh, I made the decision then to move to California um, to pursue an apprenticeship in that and just basically pack my drums on my back, set off, no plans, wow. <laughs> no, nowhere to stay, didn't know anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, yeah, everyone was like, what are you doing? You're crazy, you know. But I just knew that I just needed to get out, see the world yeah, yeah, and just yeah. give it a go, you know. Um, so it was, really, it was really, really tough. And I'll never forget the first night I arrived, 
Um, I arrived onto Pacific Beach and I thought there was a riot or I thought that this was how it was over there, but the streets were packed. There was bottles being smashed. There was people screaming. I was like, what am I after signing up for? I didn't realize it was the 4th of July. Oh, Christ. <laughs> when I went over and every hostel or hotel or anywhere I went to like look for a room, they just laughed at me. They were like, it's been booked out for a year, you know? So my first night I slept on a park bench uh, on the beach with my my drums in my hand in case anyone robbed me trying to sleep on the beach. And I was like, what have I done? With, with yeah. the bass drum as a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. And I'd no, I'd no phone and no mobile. I couldn't speak to anyone. So I was just there lying like on a bench on my first night. So, but um, it was brilliant. It was tough going. And I ended up getting an apprenticeship in Pearson over there. So that's where I actually trained. Um, and it was really tough. And then when I came back, I was just like a completely different person. It was the best thing I ever did. And then uh, the shop that I'd been helping out with in Dublin, they had an opening. Um, so that's I started working, working there, Pearson and Temple Bar. Um, so, yeah, it's like 18 years later. So for, for you then, what was first, a tattoo or a piercing? Which came first for you? Uh, Pearson first. Pearson first. I got a lovely... I got a lovely '90s big horrible ring. In my yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely atrocious. Um, and that was when I was about fourteen, I think. Um, and then I got my first tattoo when I was seventeen. It was mad because I remember, you know, my sister getting her belly button pierced, and you know, someone. I think it was my sister's who got her nose pierced. But it was mad because people used to be getting piercings and done in bad places, and they'd be getting infected and everything. That was like in the late eighties yeah. and nineties. So when when it came to Ireland first, the whole piercing your nose, piercing your eyebrow, piercing your belly button, and so on. I mean, there was a lot of dodgy places doing it too, wasn't there? Yeah, unfortunately, there still is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's sad but true. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I I have I'll write a book someday about what I've seen over the years. But I have seen some nasty, nasty stuff, you know, um, and really, really bad stuff. And there's so many cowboys out there, and it's so dangerous. And there's so many people that's just like, oh well, it's just piercing. It's not it's not tattoo. It's just piercing. And you can do so much more damage with piercing than with tattooing. You know, you're getting into nerve endings and yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's invasive because I, I think people just assume, you know, the, the ear is a kind of a dead piece of skin, you know, so that's that's always been fine. But when you kind of go into the eyebrow and the penis and whatever gets pierced, I mean, you're talking about like lots of nerves, no? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much. But I mean, even, you know, the ear and you're like, oh, it's just an earlobe, do it with a gun. I've removed keloids like that size from people, which are growths because you shatter the cartilage when you puncture it with a blunt object. You're shattering it and your body can't heal it right. back like it normally would. So it starts healing it the opposite way. So I've removed lumps off noses, ears, and I've had people with septicemia. I've had people who've had to get plastic surgery. I've had, you know, people that were put in hospital because they've done so much damage. And um, you can you can give somebody a stroke if you pierce too deep and certain. So if you've no if you've no understanding of anatomy and physiology, you have no business putting a needle through anybody. You know. Well, well, I mean, it's kind of like shooting through a wall because if if someone gives you a gun and says shoot through that, you know, plasterboard wall. You don't know what's on the other side, so you're taking a chance. So 
Like if somebody's shoving a needle into someone's skin, they don't know what cartilage is there or unless they've studied the anatomy. Exactly, so yeah. that's a big, big kind of a risk, isn't it? Yeah, it's and it's like, it, like I said, it's so dangerous. And now the availability of eBay and you can go buy it and it's like, oh, my mate's going to do it. And it's just like, if you've seen what I've seen and you know what can be done and how dangerous it is, and especially with the likes of a tongue, if you hit that main artery, you know they're they're linked to the arteries on the side of your neck like you can literally you know bleed out and like there's there's so much dangerous and then there's the whole septicemia thing and bacteria infections and uh yeah like i said i've seen i've seen a lot of stuff and to do it properly i mean it's a three-year apprenticeship it's anatomy and physiology it's bloodborne pathogens it's aseptic technique you know before you're even allowed touch a needle my any i've had eight apprentices and they're not allowed touch a needle for a year you know, they're not allowed to do any, it's all theory and learning exactly what they need to do. And if you want to be proper and professional about it, anybody can ram a needle through anybody, but if you don't know what you're doing and placement and anatomy, then you've no business doing it, you know? Like in the modern age of piercing with lots of piercing and tattoo shops, how is it regulated? I mean, is there, is there people that come out from the HSC or stuff to check on shops? How does that work? Well, this is a, a long campaign of mine that, um, I've sent petitions into governments. We've been promised every year that it's going to change. There's actually no law or legislation in Ireland at all right. to regulate tattoo or piercing. We're the last European country to actually have it. Um, and it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. I've seen the proposal. They, they brought out a proposal about two years ago. But even the proposal is not practical because they're getting people from... Um, a medical background to write these things that have no idea about tattoos or piercings. They don't understand. They're treating it like, you know, a hospital or a clinical setup, which it is, but they've no idea about tattoo needles or guns or piercing equipment or what needs to be done and what metals needs to be used or anything like that, you know? So they need to do what the UK did and each county bring in a board of five piercers and five tattoo artists and they, work in conjunction with the health and safety to bring it in you know but yeah no literally i could sit out in a van and start piercing tomorrow and nobody can shut me down i mean it's it's fine obviously if it's someone who knows what they're doing but the regulations would make sure that every that the customer going in knows it's a certified place yeah i mean like this is going to sound you know bitter and egotistical not it's it's a sad fact if the regulations came in properly tomorrow to ireland i would estimate that 40 percent of the shops would be shut down overnight um, there, there's a certain shop that is still active to this day that has carpets on their floors wow so just think about yeah. the plasma yeah, and yeah. This on, on a carpet you know it, like it's stuff like that in, in california if you don't have your autoclave certificate and you don't have your uh, bloodborne pathogens and your all your certificates displayed on the window you're not allowed open and that's the way it should be you know right right and tell me you know because i see obviously there's so many kind of services now like body modification and everything and you know what happens then if somebody let's say gets their ear done and they have you know a bigger hole and then after a few years they want to get get rid of it i mean is the road back to getting your ear back to recovery is that a cosmetic thing or like will the cartilage grow back in itself how does that usually happen um well it yeah it depends on how big the hole is and the area and stuff like that but it, it would normally if it was big enough it'd be a reconstruct job um but the whole body modification thing is is a complete gray area at the moment because um, in the UK uh, there was 
he was a friend of mine actually his body mod practitioner and he's very skilled at what he did and uh, it wasn't any of his customers that complained he had a fallen out with a jewelry company and they reported him to the health board saying that he was doing these body modification procedures and they looked into it and to make an example out of him they gave him three and a half years in prison and um, for gbh and even though there was consent and the actual customers got up and testified in court saying that they were happy and there was no problems the judge was like and um, what, what did he do what what kind of modification um so there was there was three different ones uh one was i'm trying to remember now one was like uh an ear pointing job you know where you you shape the ear into a point kind of health healthier things kind of like vulcan ears kind of like that yeah that kind of job and uh one was a tongue split and then one was well this is pretty hardcore but one was like a nipple removal really because the guy wants to get a tattooed without the nipple being there and so yeah the judge just basically said he actually said he goes i need to make an example out of you so everyone stops doing this and give him like three and a half years and he only got out there um, a couple of months ago obviously when you say there let's say nipple removal so when they're doing um, cosmetic surgery for like a breast job or whatever, you know, and someone's getting silicone implants, you know, I think sometimes they go through the the nipple or around the nipple. So where's the line between like a cosmetic surgeon doing a procedure and let's say body modification? How, how, yeah, because obviously the cosmetic surgeon would be more highly trained usually, no? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm completely, sitting on the fence as regards i completely agree on one side and i disagree on the other side but i mean you are right and there are there there's cowboys that have done body modifications that are not trained to you know the standards and there is no like actual legitimate training for a body mod artist it's up to them to study the anatomy and physiology and you know that side of things and so i completely agree and it is so dangerous in the wrong hands um and then there's people who are amazing at it as well. And it is a very grey line. Um, my reason for being on the other side of the fence is uh, as long as it's performed safely by somebody who is competent, who has shown you know their work to be competent, that nobody can dictate what you can and can't do to your body, you know. So well, I suppose you know that, like as you said earlier, it, that's where you need the regulations because. If, you know, if, they, if if someone says, I want to get a nipple removed, for example, mm. and the law says, well, yeah, but you can only get that done by a certified plastic surgeon or a cosmetic yeah. surgeon and not by a body mod guy or girl. Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously where we need regulation on that side to keep people safe, no? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, 100%. Uh, I, I, I do agree with it. There needs to be regulations and or training even offered to body modified yeah, yeah, yeah. practitioners that you know, so they can do it safely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't do any of that stuff anymore because of all the gray area, all that kind of stuff. And to be honest with you, like I, I still pierce, and, but I only do like appointment only and I only do high-end jewelry, diamonds and piercings and implant grade titanium fancy kind of stuff. And um, by appointment, I've, I've kind of moved away from it and uh, acting and my production company and the music and all that that's my main focus so i still pierce and i still love the actual art of piercing but um i've had so many shops and i've done it for so long that i've kind of moved on a little bit from yeah yeah i understand and and here's the thing you know 
I don't understand this. Like, I, you know what I mean? The whole thing about tattooing and you, I mean, you've some great tattoos. I, like, I, I, I've no tattoos, but I've nothing against tattoos. And, and I think tattoos are one of these things where you either love them or hate them. But if you hate them, you don't have to cast, you know, aspersions on other people and you don't have to judge them because the whole point is, I mean, you know, women can get ass implants and breast implants and people are like, oh, fair play to her. She wants to look good. But the point is, like, it's like everything now with gender identity and, you know, people being allowed to be who they want to be. And I kind of, you know, looking over some of your stuff and I saw some of the TV shows you were on, people have funny reactions. And I mean, and say some like ridiculous things. And, you know, I'm not going to name, obviously, that woman who was on that show you know who i'm talking about i don't mind <laughs> i won't name her because uh they, they'd come after me then but you know who i'm talking about and, and other people can as well probably but i mean it's just sometimes people being nasty for the sake of being nasty and the point is yeah. i think it doesn't matter i mean if if you have an all over face tattoo Look at Mike Tyson when he got that because he was famous and successful. There was no problem with it. But it's just if people don't yeah. know you and they see you the first time, they can give you a lot of flack. And I don't think it's very fair. But unfortunately, this world can be very cruel sometimes, no? It's unfortunately right. It's human nature to judge aesthetically. And that's fine. But like you said, you don't you don't have to project your opinion on something just because you don't like it. And we're living in a very toxic world with social media, as we all know, and the comments. Um, it, usually it's it's them being miserable with their own lives and they're they're in the confines of their own life and they would love to be able to express themselves and they're so bitter and angry that they try and project it onto other people you know and their insecurities and their negativity and i mean we all see stuff that we we judge or we don't like or whatever but like me personally i, I never feel the need to express that you know i just quietly have my opinion and then i move on from it but with the tattoos and it's one of those things you know like it sounds a bit cliche and a bit like whatever but it is the truth that you know my tattoos I don't get them for other people's opinions yeah. I get them because I wanted them and for my for myself and then people are like oh well you have to live with the decision that people are going to judge you and express their opinions onto it and it's like yeah I I understand that but it's that's the world that we've been brought up in you know to judge and anything that's different and if you don't stay within the lines there's some people that are so programmed you know and it's it's usually through generational families and how they're brought up and all you know and they just think well how dare you be different than what i've been told with my rules you know and they're usually miserable with their life and they're like i don't want you to be happy with your life you know so it's just it's ridiculous i mean i've had death threats because of the way i look really? right it's like humans i mean we've failed on so many levels you know sometimes and i see some of the comments and but they're just looking for a reaction you know and i stopped giving them a reaction a long time ago i used to sit there and get angry and write back to them and i've invited numerous people to come visit me in my shop and say it to my face and it's funny how they never show up you know i give them the address i pin drop them the address and say right you're, you're on your screen now let's come let's go have a chat or on the street and i do get comments on the street and i try and avoid social situations and going out because especially when people are drunk um i i end up in rows with people because they can't keep their opinions or their hands to themselves and it's a sad way to be and it's, it makes it awkward for my friends and family more than me because i'm used to it you know but but the shame about it is because you know 
it's like everything in life. When pe- when somebody does something and that somebody else deems as a, su- a success, they're like, oh, fair play to you, well done. But if somebody does something that they, another person wouldn't do, the first word that comes to mind is any regrets or do you have regrets? Yeah. And this is the thing that, you know, fair enough, sometimes people get a tattoo and then maybe, you know, it could be in a drunken state or even they could get it and decide afterwards, I don't like that. But, I mean, thank God there are ways to kind of remove them now. But I can see when I look at you, you're somebody who's thought about your tattoos and you don't, I, I don't for once think that you got a tattoo and then you thought, okay, well, I have this sleeve done now. I have to keep going. I can't stop because you're not going to kind of do 30% of your body and say, well, I'm fucked now. I have to keep going. You, yeah, yeah. you, you always have a choice. So you, for me, looking at you, I think you looked in the mirror and said, I want to get a new tattoo. I want another one. This is my body. I want to decorate it how I see fit, no? Yeah, like I, I honestly never like planned to be covered in tattoos. I was never like, I'm going to get covered in tattoos. You know, it was it was very much, and this is the truth, it was very much organic. If If I wanted something or something meant enough to me or... I have loads of my martial arts stuff, my family bands, you know, if I wanted it, I would just go and get it. And I would never seek anybody's approval or ask anybody's opinion. And I mean, in some ways it, it, it was a bit reckless at times. And I just, I just didn't care. I was just like, I'm getting it done. Mm, I just mm. don't give a shit, you know? Um, and I do have no regrets tattooed on my throat because, <laughs> you know, the, the amount of people that, that do say that to me, um, but I I did a video, a viral video there um, a couple of years ago. I don't know if you saw it, but I... I did. I saw the video about the office. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, co- covered all my tattoos and the makeup. Um, and, yeah, when I looked in the mirror at myself, when I was covered, and you know the way, like, people always say to me, oh, what happens when you're 60? And do you think you'll ever regret them and all this? And I always, you know, say, no, I just live for today. You could be hit by a bus tomorrow. But at the back of your mind, you do think, you know, well, what would I look like without tattoos? And how would my life be? Would it be easier or better or whatever? But when I covered them and I looked at myself in the mirror, I honestly felt like a stranger was looking back at me. Right. Like, and it, it really, like, just hit the point home that any doubts that I may have had, after that, I didn't have any doubts because I couldn't wait to get the makeup off. It just—I I can't explain it, but it did not feel like me at all. Yeah, yeah, you—you you kind of felt naked in a different way. Yeah, it just—I felt—I felt like vulnerable, or I don't know, it just felt weird. And um, my my own mother introduced herself to me. Oh, like she didn't know you? No. <laughs> so I, I was like filming, and I showed up with the DOP, the guy that was shooting it, and. Um, I had told her, I was like, oh, I want to film something. Is it okay if we, we film like down the hall and that? But I didn't tell her what it was for or anything. And we called to the front door and she like put out her hand. She was like, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Barry's mom. Like wow. introduced her to me. And then it took her a minute. And then she like, she looked at my eyes and she was like, oh, I, like, I've never seen my mother freak out <laughs> more in her whole life. So, yeah. You know, with family, you know, it's one thing if a stranger says, I don't like that or whatever. But, you know, was that something as well with your parents? You know, when you started getting tatted up, were, was it something that they learned to live with very quickly? Or are they still like your mother at that time when you had all the makeup on? She mightn't have said it, but she might have been going, oh, I prefer you this way. Or, you know, how do you think she feels about it now? Well, I mean, whether she was lying or not, but she actually said that I looked weird. and She, she didn't like it, you know. So, right. you know, maybe that's just a man being nice. But um, my mom's always been kind of like quite supportive and open and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
But my dad, when I when I got my first face tattoo, he freaked out because I know he didn't approve of me getting the visible tattoos, whatever. But he never really said anything. And then when I came home, um, I'm trying to fucking find it. Uh, it was that little star uh, under my eye. Um, and that was my commitment to the industry because I knew by getting that that I would be uh, a piercer, you know. And I got that when I was 17, so that's a massive fucking thing to get yeah, on your yeah, face. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just knew, and I've always been quite headstrong about stuff like that, but he freaked out. <laughs> um, and it took him a while to get used to it, but now he'd just be telling his golf buddies all about, <laughs> about me. And, you know, so it's completely changed. Like, the, the thing is, you know, because for some people they will have tattoos, you know. I remember I worked for a guy and he had a big, huge dragon tattoo on his forearm. But he said, you know, the one thing was when he would go to weddings or something, you know, he wouldn't roll his shirt sleeves up too high because he would be, this was like in the 60s and 70s, because he'd be afraid people seeing that tattoo and, you know, yourself. Um, But so a lot of people, I'm sure, get tattoos below the shirt or, you know, under the sleeve or below the neck and stuff because they want to kind of have that professional side with shirts and everything and then go out on the weekend to be a punk or be a rocker. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure that happens a lot. But like when you think about it existentially, you know, you think about the human existence and us being on this rolling rock and the mentality that's been drilled into us because it's such a normal thing to have that reaction. And that's the way it was back then with the tattoos. And I understand that's how they're brought up, but isn't it insane that, you know, the way you want to look, you need to hide from certain people to get a job, to be accepted in a social situation, you know, and it goes for, for anything. It goes from somebody that that's dying to wear a bright orange hat to the wedding, but they're, they're afraid to be judged. You know, it's, unfortunately it's the way that the human condition has been brought up but when you think about it from a different perspective you're like isn't that just absolutely insane that there's and it's so sad that there's so many people living and not being true to themselves whether that's afraid to come out that they're gay or afraid to get the tattoo or afraid you know and because they're so fearful of of other people judging them and what they will say and then on their deathbed, are they going to turn around and say, I, well, fuck them, I should have just lived the way I wanted to live? The thing was one time that if a guy walked in with all, you know, tats on his face and everything, people were thinking, you know, he's neo-Nazi or skinhead or so on, and that it's bringing trouble. This guy is violent or he's angry or, you know, especially like yeah. you can, you probably have been in the situation where you have other friends who are tatted up like you and they maybe go, you go together somewhere and then people are thinking, is this a gang of thugs or who are these guys? You know? Yeah. 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 Again, it's kind of, and yeah, like you said, like in the sixties and seventies, it was, it was associated with prison and it was associated with sailors mm. and roughs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, I mean, Definitely for me, it was the whole punk rock rebellious side that I did, like I love with the tattoos. And that's why like my tattoos are very like black and gray, quite punk rock. They're not like perfect tattoos. And I I completely respect and admire perfect tattoos, but they're just not for me. And now it's become so mainstream and so popular 
that it's kind of it's gone the other way now. It's become mainstream and it's not rebellious to get a tattoo anymore. You're you're almost cooler if you don't have one. Like I noticed I'm living in Spain here obviously and lots of people have tattoos, but small tattoos, you know. So it's like, you know, obviously for years in the UK, the tramp stamp, the women that have the the, the tattoo at the base of above the pants. And uh yeah. They they were kind of very common, but in Spain here you see a lot of women even like in their late forties and fifties, and they have the tattoos here, and but they're smaller ones, you know, the butterflies on the ankle and all of this. So people seem here, if they're involved in the rock and punk scene, of course they'll have more. But in the general public, a lot of people have tattoos more than not, but they're all very small. Yeah, they're 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 become like um kind of like a fashion accessory you know it's and especially with, with girls like in the last five six years it's it's become huge you know but it, like you said very small dainty kind of on fashion trend you know yeah um and that's fine if, you, if that's what you want to get but i mean when i had my tattoo shops and that we would always um and I think it's a moral obligation and not to be egotistical and not in a nasty way but we would always make sure that they were getting things for the right reason and what they were getting they were going to be happy with and like when Cheryl Cole got that tribal thing on the side of her hand we honestly we had about a hundred girls coming in really in a month looking for it and there was loads of girls that we were asking oh well like you know job you need to think about these things and not lecturing them but just saying you know, and a lot of them wanted to be air hostesses and stuff like that and you're like you can't have a visible hand tattoo you know, we talked so many out of it, and then there were some that we didn't. And there were, but like we do laser in the the shop, and the amount of those ones that we have lasered off is is crazy. You know, and um, does the laser actually work? Like, can you get rid of a tattoo completely? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Oh, really? The technology, um, and it's not like it was. It used to basically burn burn the skin. Uh, it's completely different now, and it, it you can put the laser on bare skin, and it won't react. It'll only react to the tattoo ink. Oh, and it yeah. actually breaks down the pigment and then your immune system comes along and flushes the ink out. But there's been full, full uh, successful removal with no scarring um, on the regular. Yeah, yeah, it's mad. I remember just when you when you think about the ink and obviously, you know, the way the Maoris tattoo their body with the with the old kind of traditional tools and everything. But I remember being in school when we were young and we used to use the compass, you know, you'd scrape. You'd scrape, you'd, you'd cut your, you'd cut your initials into your forearm, and then you'd the ink from the pen. Like yeah. it was, I did, we didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of like what to do in prison. And we put in, and yeah, I remember, yeah, even, I don't have it now, but I remember, like even I think about fifteen years after I was in first year or second year, I could still see the ink, part of the ink of the initials in my arm. So the ink was still in there, you know, yeah, yeah. and just like from a viral. <laughs> yeah. You're lucky you didn't end up with the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, like again, that's interesting because the first ever form of tattooing was was scarification. They used to get the flint of a rock and sharpen it and cut images in so that it would leave a scar of the image. And then, and then it was um, what right back to the ice age. Uh, and then as they progressed on, the flint they used to cut the image in and they used to get the ash from the fire. 
and that would be the ink ah. that would stay in. And that's the earliest form of, of tattoos that were. Because the way we did it, we wouldn't like we wouldn't stick the needle like a tattoo. We would scrape the arm, yeah, scrape it, and then when it would get down below, it would like be bleeding. You would put the ink in, yeah, yeah. and so that's kind of, that's like that's you call that scarification. Scarification, yeah. So ah. and yeah, um, that was the earliest ever form of it and you know once you're not going below the subcutaneous layer the ink will sit in that little pocket there once you get it down deep enough yeah but i'm sure like like that you know in prison the way when you know especially you know prisons where there'd be a lot of tattoos and some great tattoo artists i'm sure even now to this day there are people getting tattoos done in kind of dodgy ways no yeah 100 percent. i mean it's the the walkman would be a common way of making a, a tattoo machine in prison using the motor of, of the oh, walkman yeah, and yeah yeah that, that was that was a common way but uh yeah i mean it still goes on and there's many many ways and forms and um i've had some traditional tattoos done with the bamboo and the tap and, and poke you know all those and it's fascinating that's quite sore no uh it's not it's not more painful it's just slower getting it done you know but it's actually it's not it's not um more painful you know from all the tattoos you have where was the sorest place so what was the most tender um well the getting the head tattooed was excruciating you know when you smack your head off a shelf yeah. and you have to rub it it's like that for like five hours at a time oh, wow. and you can't rub it <laughs> wow um the armpit was horrible um the back of the knees i've heard under the arm there is very very tender for that is it yeah yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, really horrible. Um, and there's loads of nerve endings there as well. And uh, for me, I I hate anyone touching my ribs. I broke my ribs um in competition in in jujitsu, and I hate anyone touching my ribs. So getting them done was like a challenge because I just don't like anyone touching my ribs. So yeah, pretty What's the longest sitting you've done for a tattoo? Um, <laughs> I'll never forget it. Eight eight and a half hours at a tattoo convention, where you know everybody's walking by and watching you get tattoos so you're pretending to be brave and the guy who did it is known as one of the heaviest hand <laughs> and he was digging for gold uh eight and a half hours yeah i was no that's like you know when you watch a tv show and they say he's eight hours in surgery but eight hours getting tattoos is crazy no yeah at a tattoo convention try not to cry in front of 200 people <laughs> brave man in the show yeah. you know wow but, uh, I, I used to be brave and these days i'm just a big baby i think like anyone who i haven't gotten tattooed in a couple of years but anyone who tattoos me now or my wife she's a tattoo artist and um, I, I can complain a lot more to them yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> i can moan yeah brilliant yeah. that's great uh, so so come here let's um well just just to finish off on the tattoo you have how many shops do you have two or three shops i've had loads of shops over the years but my my last one in dundalk i closed um a year and a half ago because i have a private studio now okay and um, so it's private by appointment and I only do it when I have, well, like when I'm um, acting and doing the stuff, whenever I have free dates, I'll book it in that way. So like I said, I kind of, I moved away and this, this, the shop we had here in the knock was absolutely insanely busy and everybody thought I was crazy closing it, but I was about to have a nervous breakdown. I was literally running from one thing to the other and trying to keep everything afloat and it was too much. And now I have such a better work-life balance 
with the appointments and I'm able to do all the other stuff that I want to do. So like with the acting, you know, because obviously you were, you were doing the Pearson and, and you were playing music and everything. So how did you get into the acting? How did that come about? I mean, the earliest, um, I've always been acting the bollocks, I suppose, yeah. but like the earliest uh, was like when I was younger, I used to do, you know, theater summer camps and stuff like that. And I loved them. But again, it was the whole like rough town. If people found out that you did, like those, you'd be fucking, you know, targeted. And it was just kind of ridiculousness. And, but then like the music came along, the martial arts and all that. So I kind of just, you know, forgot about it for a while. And then because of the tattoo look, I started getting um, requested to do a lot of the like modeling alternative look and stuff. And I am quite a quiet, shy, reserved guy. So I felt really awkward and I said no as much as I could, to be honest. Like I was completely just terrified and didn't want to do it. And then um, after a while I did it and I, then I, I signed to an agency and I started getting some big commercial stuff and I got used to it. And that was kind of my start of my acting because I was so nervous and I used to look at photo shoots that I'd done and I, you can see it in your face. You're like, well, Jesus, you look like a rabbit in the headlights. And then I, I kind of developed this persona that I, I was pretending to be confident in front of the camera, you know? And then from that, I started getting asked to be in music videos and, you know, stuff like that. And then I kind of just got the bug for the acting, you know, to try and start pushing it and pursuing it and stuff like that. And, um, so I've been about 15 years now really kind of pushing it, but really only in the last six years that it's kind of started to take off. Yeah. When you started getting some gigs through it, was it something you thought, okay, I want to kind of go and study this a bit more, or you just kind of learned as you went along? I learned as I went along and, um, I was getting, you know, loads of commercial work and all that. And then, um, it, the studying and the training thing, I didn't actually do any training on and my first one was probably about probably about seven years ago. I started taking a few classes. Um and then as I was kind of getting more and more work, uh, I decided then to go back and study in Bow Street Acting Academy, which is the biggest screen acting um course in Ireland. And I did that in two thousand and eighteen, two thousand nineteen. Um just to go back and that was an amazing experience and it really like taught me so much and then I was out in LA at the start of last year and I was training out in um, an acting academy out there called Crash Acting with Benjamin Mattis who's one of the the big guys out there and that was amazing so as an actor you should kind of always keep training and you learn something new from each class and like I did method acting um, with Brian Timoney about three or four years ago in England and I discovered that I didn't really like method acting the style it didn't suit me you know but you need to go do these things to to find out what works for you and what doesn't i heard a funny story once about a guy that was going to a method acting coach and uh he was supposed to be there at like seven or eight in the morning to start the thing and he arrived at nine and the coach said to him what's what's this like you were supposed to be here an hour or two ago and he said yeah but i'm trying to get into the character and he's always late for stuff <laughs> yeah, get you out of anything. <laughs> and the method the method acting coach was looking at him like i don't know if you're wrong or right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um, no? another, another great story about method acting it was uh dustin hoffman was uh filming rain man and Lawrence olivier um and Dustin Hoffman hadn't slept in three days because he was trying to get into the method of the character and make him look sleep deprived and stressed out and everything. And um, when he came in that morning, 
Lawrence Olivier said to Dustin Hoffman, goes, Jesus, man, you, you, you look awful. Like, are you okay? And he's like, oh, I've been three days up and I'm, I'm trying to get into the mindset, but I'm really struggling to, really struggling to get into the mindset. And Lawrence Olivier just turned around to me, he goes, do you ever try acting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, <laughs> you're, it's like some, some, for some people, it's very natural to do some roles, but then for other roles, they're like, I need a method acting coach. And you're like, yeah, well, yeah. maybe just act it out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give it a go, you know? So, yeah, it works, it, works, it works for some people. And some of the best actors in the world are method actors and fair play to them. I just couldn't mentally do what you need to do to get there and i i find i can i can get there okay you know i don't need to stay in the character for weeks walking around um but yeah i mean obviously with the look and you know the tattoos and all that i do get typecast as the villain yeah i I was gonna i was gonna ask you that because obviously from you know from roles you've done and roles you're yet to do do you, did you kind of feel like, okay, or did an agent even say to you, you know, you might be typecast a little yeah. bit, to expect but that? Like that's, I, I'm fine with it. It's not something that like, I complain about. I love playing those roles. It's, it's so much fun playing the bad guy. I get to play all these and I'm absolutely fine with it. But there is more to me than that, you know? And I've been just trying to knock, knock on doors, knock on doors for the last few years to try and convince cast and agents that there is, you know, you don't always have to cast me as the villain or the bad guy. And I did one romantic comedy. Um, it was actually uh, the follow-on movie from Cecilia Hearn, P.S. I Love You. It was the, the next movie after that. Um, and it was like a rom-com. And all my friends were like, what the fuck are you doing playing a rom-com? Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, well, why not? You know, it's again, it's the, the stigma that we have that I look like this, so I should play this, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, so... When I was in Bow Street then, um, we were encouraged, you know, to to write our own stuff. And if there's roles that you want to get and you can't get cast for, you're not getting seen for, go write it yourself and go film it yourself. And that's what I did. So my debut short film, um, Reflection, I wrote a character for myself that was very vulnerable. It was to do with uh, male suicide and the juxtaposition between people seeing me on the screen with this little girl that's lost in the woods who helps me and seen that yeah because i i have i haven't watched that yet but i the picture even the cover where the noose is hanging and you're in the woods with the girl i mean you kind of can get an idea what's coming or what it's about but it looks really interesting because the first thing that i was thinking looking at the girl i was thinking okay because i didn't know was it you know not having watched it i was thinking is this like some kind of psychological thriller is the girl real so i'm interested to watch that one okay yeah there's there's a few twists and turns i won't i won't ruin it yeah yeah but um, yeah loads of my mates were like did you kill her (laughs) 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 yeah i hope that's um, for a horse (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 so like definitely uh yeah so i went and wrote that with the you know the goal of displaying myself in a different way and it it, it did work because like casting directors and people saw me and they were like we never would have thought of seeing you in this kind of vulnerable role and you know so it opened a few a few doors and that's what you need to do if you're an actor and you're not getting the parts that you want to display just go make it yourself mm, yeah yeah for sure and so you know obviously with with kane and you know the the dublin murders and all of these stuff you've been been in uh, once it kind of started was it like you know did the momentum keep going once you did a role and then were you straight into other roles or did you have big gaps between things big gaps you know and 
it's to the credit of like Louise Kiley, casting director, um, and Ali Coffey, and these people that I've like spent years building up relationships with, um, because they're putting a risk by putting me into, you know, for these castings and these roles because I'm so far out there, you know, and it's their reputation, and it's only for these kind of people that are pushing for me, and I have an agent in the UK and I have an agent here, um, that it's it's taken years and years to to break down the barriers and get known and um, but definitely you'd get a role and you'd be like you know into the badlands was amazing i was like wow this is amazing amc big network show and you think you know it's going to follow on to something and then there could be nothing for months and months and months you know and it's very sporadic and that's why in the downtime you know i set up the production company and we started making our own stuff, you know, to, to put yourself out there and stay in the spotlight. Right, right. Yeah, because I suppose that's kind of the way you have to look at it now. You know, if you do a role and then you've nothing for six months, you know, don't waste that talent you have. And and especially as you're learning things as you go along, because you'll be on shoots and you'll see the way things are done. So you will learn like how it's all done. And then you can kind of say, well, when we have our production company, we, we're learning as well from being on those big sets. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like my second short, Marrow, it's um, it's about mermaids. You yeah, know, I, it's saw, I saw a trailer of that one. Yeah. So obviously, I'm not in that one. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But <laughs> not, I, yeah. I'm not the mermaid. You're not the mermaid. Um, so like I just wrote and directed it with my wife uh, under our production company. And we took over cinematography on that one. Um, and we, we picked up awards for the cinematography. And again, it was, you know, just from learning ourselves and we learned so much on doing reflection. We learned all the mistakes and, you know, and a lot of those mistakes, we were like, okay, so we're going to take those mistakes into our own hands now, because sometimes when you put trust in other people and they don't deliver what they're looking for and, you know, so it's all a learning curve and, and now the script for my feature film. So that's, that's going to be the next big, big one. So that's a huge project, but it's, it's moving along. With obviously doing the feature film, is it hard to get funding from the Arts Council or, you know, what's it like? Yeah, it's, it's really, really tough. Um, it's, it's very, very tough. So I'm lucky that I, like, through the two short films, I've, I've built up some good connections and the awards helps and stuff like that. So... I have four production companies that are interested in coming on board and I have two investors and, but it's going to take a lot of raising funds and, um, you know, you can apply for a lot of grants, but there's not a lot out there. It's very slim pickings and, um, you could be waiting a couple of years if you're waiting on grants, you know, so you have to be quite proactive about it and just make it happen as best you can for yourself, you know. And, you know, obviously like that, when you have a production company and, you know, you'll probably run into other people with scripts and they'll come on board with you. But that whole idea of pitching, you know, especially people going over to LA, I don't know what season it starts, but the whole pitching season. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough, that's a tough thing to do as well, isn't it? That's what I was over in LA for. It was pilot season, you know, and uh, it's (laughs) like, I knew going out there how tough it was going to be, but Jesus, like nobody wants to help you. It's, they're all so like selfish and it's not like over here and they keep everything to themselves because they're worried that you're going to take their job and you know nobody will tell you anything and very cagey but I mean it's it's such a tough thing to do and it really like acting or production company or making your own films or directing or anything it's such a long game it's building up connections building a rapport building up a reputation for yourself meeting good actors along the way and 
uh, remembering those who helped you and, and those who didn't and trying to help them with their career and um it's it's all about building up connections and then trying to call in those connections when you need them which is what we're going to be doing with the feature because it's it's a huge undertaking and um, but so far the reaction to the script has been amazing and um hopefully with the product all the production companies coming together we can actually get this thing made yeah so i'm, I'm excited about it and you know you were mentioning there let's say with the cinematography so for you guys you know did you have to kind of build like an, an editing studio or you know are you using minimal equipment yeah i mean um my wife edited marrow the last one um herself just on the mac and basically like taught herself to do it and um I mean, the compliments and she was commended on the editing, and Brilliant. you know, so it, it was, you know, a self-taught thing and same with us with the cameras and stuff like that. And it was just kind of a learning experience of us going out there and getting it done. Um, but sometimes that's just the way you need to do it, you know? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm the same like that because my background's always kind of been in music and I've done music production and everything. But when I started doing this podcast and I, I think it was up towards Christmas, I thought, OK, I'm going to kind of have to do a video for a Christmas show. And, you know, you're sitting down with Final Cut Pro and saying, okay, how does this work? Is it yeah. like logic? Is it, di- is it different? Yeah. And you have to yeah. just learn as you go along and kind of make mistakes. And, and you know, you get better and better. But it, it's great now. I mean, we have the software and the, the YouTube and Internet and everything to teach you as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, like, it, it was amazing when my wife was editing it because we could be in control of our own project, you know, Whereas before it was a little bit out of our hands and, you know, but because we read and we know the vision that we had and how we wanted it to look. And, um, it was it's such an amazing experience, you know? Um, and like it, with the Dublin crust now, we'll be bringing in a lot, like a lot more people into the fold. And, um, but there are people that I've met and know how good they are and have a rapport with them. And there's, there's two like big names. I'm not going to name yeah, yeah, them okay, now. No not yeah. official, but, there are people that I've had interactions with through different stuff over the years that I've written characters for them and I've approached them and they're both interested, which yeah, get those names on there to get it sold would just be absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Obviously I know it's very hard to, to put a, a date for release, but do you, do you think it'll be like next year or the year after or when? Well, I'm, I'm very proactive when I get going and um, I don't hang around. Obviously with COVID we're restricted, but, I did the script is done in the production companies and the ball is rolling. I was actually out scouting locations today. I secured one of the big, big locations that we needed today. All within five kilometers. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> Just to throw that in there. Um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistically aiming for November to get filming and shooting, you know. The, the guards will be watching the f- film and they'll be like, hold on, they're up the Dublin mountains. That's 15 kilometers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll be like, it'll be kind of retro crimes. They'll be looking back at all the films made in Ireland during COVID going, that's not their town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, brilliant. That's, that's brilliant. Well, I mean, good luck with that. That's going to be great. And I, I kind of, I was reading obviously a bit of the description about that movie. It's kind of a, train spotting type movie as well so it sounds like it's gonna be really interesting kind of yeah it's like train spotting meets the commitments full monty kind of black comedy with a with a drama behind it and it was about a crazy um punk band i forgot to mention that it was in called mongohorn for seven years um they were absolutely insane the front man was insane so it's loosely based on on that story of of the band and 
uh, set in in Dublin and um, yeah, really excited about it. Uh, someone who read the script last night said that um, it was it reminded them of the snapper and the van and those kind of Roddy Doyle kind of you know. Um, when you look back now with everything you've done so far as as regards you know TV and movies, is there any is there one particular role that you really enjoyed? Into the Badlands, like, and I'd done lots of stuff before that. That was the scariest thing in my life. And, like, I've done stand-up comedy. I've done live TV and all that kind of stuff. But that was terrifying because it was such an enormous set and there was so much pressure. Um, so I look back on it now and I kind of – I didn't enjoy it because I was so terrified, you know. Um, but filming on Kin, and I only have a small role on Kin, but um, – it's a nice scene and I, I did a lot of prep work for it and I found myself enjoying myself so much more because it was so many years later and I'd done so much in between and I was actually able to enjoy the experience, you know? So, um, yeah, I say to the, to date, that was probably my most, most enjoyable, um, on the acting side of things. Definitely. Yeah. And obviously, you know, with the Dublin murders and, and Kin, you know, they're, they're kind of coming from that thought of, uh, or that how would I put it um, style like Love Hate so when Love Hate was being filmed like did you get a nod at any stage towards that or no nothing um, and a lot of the people that were casting that were from Bow Street but uh, that was before you know my yeah, time yeah. And, um, no didn't even have an audition for that and like I've had auditions for stuff that's that's come out and like uh, that Darklands thing and a few auditions for that and didn't get them and like I've done so many auditions and there's been so many failures and that's something that you have to take as an actor, as every actor knows, you know? Um, and I mean, you just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and you can get like 50 no's and then it's that one yes yeah, that makes of it course. worthwhile, you know? But it it can be really, really tough and mentally draining and you start questioning yourself and, you know, it's... But the competition is ridiculous. I did a self-tape for a new BBC drama last week and my agent... Um, was saying the week before there was a role and he put one of his female actresses from the books onto it and they got seven and a half thousand tapes for a one-line part. That's how many people sent in tapes. So that's what you're up against. And he was like, they'll maybe get to 30 tapes if you're lucky. But if you don't get in in the first 30 tapes, they're not even going to see your tape. Imagine you're 7,500 tapes. You know? So that's what you're up against, yeah. Here's a question for you. Like, because I, I was thinking this actually, because you know, I came across your profile on LinkedIn, and uh, I saw obviously, you know, your credits, and your I was looking at your showreel, and I was like, this guy looks interesting. But for me, it wasn't. I mean, I saw your tats, but it wasn't about your tats. You know, I, I didn't think I want to get this guy on to talk about his tattoos, because I mean, I've seen lots of people with tattoos. It was your, more your career I was interested in, and but what I was thinking then, just kind of when I was researching you, I was thinking. I wonder, does he get invited onto a lot of TV shows because of his body image? Yeah, I do, and I've I've done lots of them, and I've been on I've been on a lot of them. But to be honest with you, I'm kind of I'm kind of a little bit done with them. Um, it brings the most hate into my life. Uh, it really does. Like, I mean, that one you were talking about earlier and, you know, the video. And I, I still share the video because the message of it is good. I hate, I can't even watch it myself. I can't, I just, I don't like it. But um, the message is good, but it brings out all the trolls and all the hate. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to defend. And I do a lot of videos on, you know, 
body positivity and stuff like that. But a lot of these TV shows and that, they're like, they're for shock tactics and they want to react and they're trying to, in a passive aggressive way, they're trying to, you know, get a reaction out of you and put you down and, you know, they're pretending like they're they're asking you one thing, but you're, they're still making you defend it. And so I don't know. I've done I've done a lot. The Tommy Tiernan one was amazing. He was absolutely brilliant. He was so good. Um, and it, they actually edited out so much of that because they had to edit it down, you know. But we had such a great chat, and there was like we were, you know, pissed, making each other piss ourselves laughing. And then afterwards, we, we were chatting for about two hours about music afterwards, like and. He was such a genuine nice guy and he he apologized um i haven't ever watched it back but <clears throat> i don't know if it's if they left it in but the first thing he said to me was any regrets yeah i saw that and, actually i saw that yeah yeah but then at the end i don't know if they kept it in but after i had the chat with him and i was out there talking to him for like an hour and they only put in like eight minutes or whatever but he said at the end he goes like after listening to you he said i'm I'm one of those people that the first thing I said to you was any regrets. And after listening to you now, I realized that, you know, you've made the point that that's, that's the worst thing I said. So I'd like to apologize to you, you know, I don't know if they left it in. It was nice. Like people can say something, but they don't mean it in a malicious way. And they're just kind of can be joking as well. And I suppose Tommy's the biggest joker, you know? So mm. the thing about it is, um, it's, he has that kind of cynical, sarcastic wit. So yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. he meant it in a bad way. I think it was something he, he just said it, but, but like sometimes you can say something and say, Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But um, yeah. no, I, I just kind of get that feeling sometimes that, you know, from it, you know, I'm not doing this a very long time, but sometimes when you interview different people, you kind of get a feeling that when they're in the entertainment industry, they're typecast a little or they're brought on shows because of their image or because of their skin color or anything. And for me, I don't really like that. I mean, I always try and keep this show very positive. And I always say to people, I'm not going to ask you questions that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. You know, if you, if, if you do, we'll cut it out. If I do, I'll, we'll take it out. But the thing about it is, because sometimes in the media, there's too many shock tactics and they're trying to get a, um, a reaction. Yeah, yeah. And like I, I, I said no to every season of Body Shockers that's on Channel 4. And like season three, they were ringing me again. They were like, no, it's like, it's not going to be like the other seasons. We're going to portray it because they were portraying it really, really bad. They were saying anybody that got a tattoo had mental health issues. And you know, and no, season three is all about the positivity and the art and it's going to be complete. They rang me. I'd, honestly, I say they rang me about 17 times and I was like, no, not doing it, not doing it. And then season three came out and it was the exact same bullshit as the other two. So they were just absolutely lying through their teeth. And there's there's loads of them that I've said no to because I'll only do something if it's from a positive spin, not from a negative spin. I don't want to be associated with that kind of stuff, you know? No, I mean, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Because there's too much of that. And unfortunately, they're trying to sell TV shows. And the biggest way to sell it is by something shocking or different and it sometimes can be very negative and, and they don't realize sometimes they're kind of destroying people's lives because, you know, you know, for every, you're one person telling the story, but you could have thousands or millions watching it. And the thing is you're opening yourself to up to all of this, like online abuse and everything, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely it. Yeah. And I remember, um, I was on the Nikki Byrne show or the Ryan, the Ryan Turpity show on his radio show. 
and did the interview and it was grand you know it was fine whatever and just talking about tattoos and all the usual crap and all that but I remember Orti rang me the next day to notify me that they've had to remove something like 92 comments because they were so horrendous and they were like if you need to talk to somebody like about them and I don't read comments anymore I've learned that a long time ago so I just I don't read them you know and it was death threats to my family and saying I was a disgrace to my family and like all this fucking mental shit you know so pure it, it, it yeah it brings a lot and I mean most of these kind of shows they care about their ratings they don't really care about you you know so I've said no to more than I've said yes, for sure. That's yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I think the problem is that, you know, in some of those shows, the host could be great, but there's such a big production crew or directing behind it that, and they have to work to these kind of, um, what's the word, like, rules or they say oh yeah well you know we want the shock factor and the host might be saying i don't want to ask those questions but they're kind yeah, of saying no yeah. no we need to ask those questions the tough questions oh shit yeah no it's 100 percent true and then editing as well and i'd actually worked with the director before the tommy tiernan thing and he rang me and um because rte rang me and they got 3.5 million views on the little clip that they shared and they'd never gotten that before in a video so they were all like you know saying it was amazing whatever and the director rang me because i'd worked with him before and he was like oh, i loved it and he was like he was kind of apologizing saying there was so much good stuff there but he had to work within what he was told the beats were and he's like he's like i couldn't leave in all the acting stuff and talking about your music and all that it was all they wanted the tattoos and that was it you know so it's the way it, you know i understand that yeah well i mean yeah but i mean you're you're so much more than that because that's that's kind of I think in a way the tattoos are kind of like your fashion sense. I mean, it's like what you decide to wear. I know it's on you all the time, but it's not It's not just you. There's something inside that. And, you know, your creative side obviously is shown in the movies and the TV and your acting and everything. So there's so much more to you. But the first thing people just hone in on is the body image. Yeah, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but like it doesn't define me. You know, no, my tattoo, no, no. They're just there. But like, as well, I go into autopilot, I go into robot mode because people say the same things to me over and over, ask me the same things when I'm out. And I have these set answers that I don't even think about. And the, the annoying thing for me is if I meet new people or whatever, it takes me 15 minutes to get past the tattoo conversation before you get to my real personality. Mm, you know? Exactly, yeah. Because yeah. the tattoo thing, we've been talking about it for years and it's grand. I'll answer them as long as people are being respectful. I understand they're curious, whatever. But then... After 15 minutes, if somebody starts talking to me about movies, then my real personality, I, I, I'm completely different because I'm, I'm actually engaged and talking about it, you know. So it's one of those things I just kind of, you just have to get used to. Yeah, and, and I suppose, you know, from doing it for so long now, you're probably expecting, oh, here we go, you know. But yeah, I mean, that's why for me, it's not the thing I wanted to focus on. And I know it's a part of your life and it's a big part of your life. But I think, to be honest, when I look at you, there are bigger things happening in your life than your tattoos. And there are bigger things that have happened. And those are the kind of things people should focus on because it's kind of like the ugly DJ thing. You know, if you're, you can be the yeah. ugliest guy in the world, but have the best voice. And people would say, oh, he's an amazing voice. And then they see the face and they're changing the reaction. And you're thinking, why? Why are you changing yeah. the reaction? You yeah, love no, the voice. Pretty... Still loving the voice, you know? Yeah. I mean, like your questions were educated and, you know, like, absolutely no problem answering them and they were interesting you know and um, but it's just when you when you're out or or a lot of interviews as well you, yeah you are right i'm just i'm kind of waiting for the 
the question and I, you know they ask the same things over and over again and, and and I did it for a long time and I've done loads of them and all that but I'm just I'm kind of for the tattoo side of things and all that I'm kind of over that I don't need to really do it anymore well listen so. listen Baz you know it's been wonderful talking to you I mean very interesting and, and you've had a great life you're still a young guy and you've had a really interesting life so far so I can see great things coming you know to you in the future um, what's your like you know the, the last thing I want to ask you what's your kind of ambitions or aspirations for the next year or two what, is it getting the the movie finished And yeah I mean um, it'll be Mainly, yeah, moving the production company along, so Sherlock Productions, and then it'll be the main focus will be getting the the feature film rolling and you know moving along. And um, the Uncaged movie, uh, it's filming in Pinewood Studios in the UK, and that's May now is the date that we've been given. So hopefully that goes ahead, and I'll be over filming that for a while. Um, I'm doing a, a TV series um, called Isolation. Um, so I've, I've a bit coming up on that as well and uh, yeah then when Kin comes out hopefully that'll open up doors I'm, I'm also I'm filming um, a feature film Centauri it's a sci-fi one with Wesley Grogan um, he's directing it so I have that coming up as well and hopefully these things actually you know get going and get moving and for me like my main goal and it has been for a long time is I my just dream as an actor is to get on a TV series like a regular TV, like Line of Duty or any kind of BBC drama where you're a regular character and you can lock that off for a few months of your life. You know, that'll be that'll be definitely the dream there. So, well, I'm sure that'll happen in time. You know, you know, give it, give it, give it time and have the patience. You know. So, listen, thanks very much, and um, we really appreciate you coming on. And you know, when the when the movie comes out, we'll plug it and everything, and to you know whatever listeners we have, and we will, you know, hopefully we'll have you on the show again in the future. You know, because it's been yeah, a real absolutely. pleasure to yeah. chat to you. You know. So, thanks again, uh, Baz Black, everybody. Thanks a million, man. Okay, thank you very much, Baz. That was a really interesting conversation and uh, thanks for shedding some light on the tattoo and piercing scene in Ireland. And we look forward to speaking to you some more and also best of luck with your acting and look forward to seeing some of your upcoming projects and we will plug them and let everybody know about them. Okay, moving on to next week's guest. So next week we have Ulton Conlon, and Ulton is from Loch Ray. He's an Irish singer-songwriter. Ulton has performed live with John Martin, Mary Cottle, Lisa Hannigan, Mark Geary, Rosie, and so many more. So Ulton has a new album coming out at the moment, and, you know, Ulton has played with John Martin, and he really has, you know, formed his own kind of identity on the live scene and he's very in demand and he has a new song with Gabby Moreno as well at the moment so we're going to talk more to Ulton about everything he's doing and we might hear some nice music from him as well so we hope you tune into that and you know we'll be here at the same time every week and we hope you come along we hope you've enjoyed today's show and you know we look forward to having you out here the next time as well. So look after yourselves and take care of everybody else as well. And we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.